financial markets are growing ever more innovative, ever faster, ever more interconnected, ever more productive. And at the same time, federal financial regulation is becoming itself ever more complicated, uh, but also more and more politically salient, sometimes even politically controversial. And so we thought we'd have some conversations about that today, both on some specific issues and regulatory questions, and also just about the big picture question of the state of financial regulation. Again, if this is the 20th anniversary of JLEP, it seems like the right time to take a look back and also to take a look 20 years forward. That's what the opening panel is going to focus on above all. The big picture, what is the future of financial regulation? We're very, very lucky to be joined by this group of speakers. And also lucky to be joined uh, by our moderator today, Professor Paolo Saguato. Uh, he's a great friend of the Gray Center and a great friend of mine. Uh, I'm very, very glad he's here to moderate the panel. He's an associate professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School. Uh, he writes on banking regulation, on systemic risk regulation, and more. And he's also leading the Scalia Law School's new program, the Financial Markets Program, which is going to help students, uh, faculty, and practitioners think harder and, and think together about markets, uh, their regulation, um, and how to, how to educate students on these things. So maybe Paolo will educate us a little bit today, too. I'll turn it over to you. So I'm going to briefly introduce the panelists, but then you can find more information in the booklet that was uh, circulated uh, about the conference. So on my far right, uh, John Cochran has the roles. Mary and Jack Anderson, senior fellow at Hoover Institution at Stanford University. John recently published a book titled The Fiscal Theory uh, of the Price Level. Uh, no better timing publish a book about inflation. Uh, John has written extensively on monetary policy, inflation, asset markets, and financial regulation, among other things. Uh, next to John is Catherine Judge. Kate is uh, the Harvey Goldschmidt uh, Professor of Law and Vice Dean for Intellectual Life at Columbia Law School. Uh, Kate also recently published a book titled Direct, uh, The Rise of Middleman Economy and the Power of Going to the Source, about the intermediation of the economy. I think I just created that word. Uh, a research focus on banking, financial innovation, financial crisis, and uh, regulatory architecture. Next to Kate is uh, Jonathan Macy, the Sam Harris Professor of Corporate Law, Corporate Finance, and Securities Law at Yale Law School. John has written extensively on corporate governance, corporate finance, securities regulation, and financial regulation. He holds a PhD honoris causa from the Stockholm uh, School of Economics, and also he was my banking law professor <laughs> <laughs> and a very fluent Italian speaker. Uh, last but not least is my colleague Todd Zawicki. His thought about the future of financial regulation. I think, by the authority granted to me by Adam, I declare Italian as the official language of the panel. <laughs> it's Italian American Heritage Month. So, John, in polio tuo, per favore, parlaci di la regolamentazione dei mercati finanziari. Va bene, se deve essere in italiano, deve essere in italiano. Perfetto, <laughs> benissimo. Non c'è nessun problema. Benissimo. Majority of the panelists speak Italian. So <laughs> uh, so we're supposed to talk about the future of financial regulation. Uh, that's too depressing, so I'm going to talk about <laughs> what the future well, should be rather than what it is most likely to be. And I'll, I'll we're all advertising stuff. I have an essay towards our run-free financial system, which uh, contains some of my ideas here. Uh, plus, of course, we're writing a paper, which you all should read when time is done. Um, in 2008, we had a, a little financial crisis, as you may remember. Uh, bailouts right and left, and, but at least the people in charge had the decency to recognize that something was wrong with this uh, and to recognize the moral hazard that, it, that the bailouts entailed 
and said, we'll fix it. And they passed the Dodd-Frank Act. Never again. Fifteen years later comes the second great once-in-a-century crisis, and we just did it all again. And that architecture has basically failed. Uh, to be specific, what, what happened? Uh, there was a pandemic, but also, uh, starting March 2020, the Fed bailed out the Treasury markets with some um, uh, technical issues that had been pointed out for years and nobody got around to fixing. Uh, money, there's a run on money markets. Money market funds are about the easiest things to fix. Again, 15 years, everybody understood it, no one got around to fixing it. Uh, direct lending to state and local governments. Uh, the Pandemic Protection Act was in many ways a financial uh, bailout because give companies money and the companies can pay their banks back. Uh, my favorite, the Mario Draghi worth, worthy um, whatever it takes on corporate bond prices announced by the Fed. Apparently, uh, mark-to-market losses on corporate bonds are something nobody should be allowed to ever uh, suffer again, and so forth. Uh, then we had the Silicon Valley Bank failure and First Republic Bank failure. These are instructive, I think. How did these banks fail? They, uh, took, un um, they took unsecured deposits and put them into long-term treasuries. No toxic derivatives, no crazy financial engineering. This is stuff we've understood at least since the 1700s, exactly how uh, that sort of run bails out, figures out. Yet, this massive regulatory architecture was unable to see that elephant in the room coming. I think that's, that's important to recognize. What are the limits of this regulatory architecture? You can't see basic interest rate risk coupled with uh, unsecured deposits and do something about it. Heavens, think of all the fancy stuff they're trying to do. I mean, this crew is going to go out and find climate risk to the financial system, whatever it means. I think the UBS failure was uh, also instructive. Uh, remember all the wonders of how we're going to stop big bank, uh, big bank bailouts, because we're going to have um, resolution authority, orderly liquidation, the equity gets wiped out, no more big bailouts. Nope, sorry, can't, can't bother with that. <laughs> Put to the test that one. That whole project was uh, revealed to be empty. Um, the one thing we didn't do is bail out the big banks again. But I think we are very clearly in the regime. The big banks are too big to fail. Period. So much for the end. Too big to fail. <laughs> now, what's wrong with uh, a river of public uh, uh, bailout every ten years uh, uh, when it comes along? Well, what's wrong? First of all, is the moral hazard of it. Uh, keep not levering up which is crazy, and, not, and keeping some cash around to buy on the dips is pointless if you're always going to be front-run by the Fed. Uh, so the moral hazard, and of course, eventually, we're going to run out of money. Even Uncle Sam's going to run out of money. Uh, if, let's say, China invades Taiwan, we're going to have the mother of all financial uh, crises. Uh, this last time, five trillion bucks turned out to be too much. Uh, the Fed, uh, the, the government tried to borrow five trillion, handed it around, and got inflation. We are quite plausibly at the fiscal limit. There comes a moment when it's too big, uh, even for Uncle Sam to bail out, and then heaven help us, because the the worst thing is is when you build a big firehouse and then the firehouse burns down. So what are we going to do about it? Um, I think we have to recognize the basic architecture of this system is broke. The basic architecture is uh, financial institutions can uh, it, it's not in their assets. Financial institutions' assets are unbelievably safe. I mean, imagine the puzzle. Let's look at, like, Tesla's <coughs> cash flow prospects versus the assets of a typical big bank. One is, you know, uh, spaceships to Mars and electric cars. The other is a widely diversified portfolio of fixed income assets. 
Where are all the regulators looking at risk? Over here. That's crazy. These are the safest assets on the planet. Why? Because they're financed by uh, high leverage into run-prone liabilities that cause crises. The problem is the liabilities, not the assets. So uh, the answer is, is, is fairly simple and obvious once you, once you state that. Um, the problem is liabilities, and, and we've had this answer sitting around pretty much forever. And I'll, I'll summarize the answer as equity-financed banking and uh, narrow deposit-taking. I don't use the word narrow banking for a good reason, because I hate those words. You're going to have all the banking you want, all the lending you want. You're just going to finance it by common equity and long-term debt. Uh, you can issue all the uh, short-term liabilities you want. You're just going to back those 100% by, uh, by reserves or similar uh, short-term uh, government liabilities. Now, um, why is this a good answer? Uh, if we do that, before you start objecting, if we do that, we can end private sector financial crises forever. Now, of course, some of this is linguistic. We have to recognize, we have to answer the question, what constitutes a crisis? What is systemic risk? I'm an economist, and, and uh, I will notice that most of the big words used here are fairly meaningless, or at least undefined. We have to understand a systemic risk, a crisis, is only that um, a, run, a systemic run on short-term liabilities. It is not the possibility that somebody somewhere might lose some money on a mark-to-market basis. That doesn't constitute a financial crisis needing, needing regulation. So we can stop systemic runs forever. Uh, how? If an if a equity-financed institution loses money on the assets, what happens on the liability side is you, your stock goes down, you lost some money, you go home, you have a whiskey, you, you yell at the dog, there's not much you can do about it. If you hold short-term debt or another run-prone liabilities, uh, what you can do is run, get your money, try to get your money out before everybody else and bring it down. Uh, so floating value assets eliminate uh, financial crises. Before you start saying, oh, but that's too costly, oh, but I might pay 10 basis points on my mortgage, just think about the benefit. And private sector financial crises and all the moral hazard in, and taxpayer liability involved in the bailouts forever. That's a pretty big uh, benefit. And uh, this is something we've understood since the 1930s. I'm sure you're full of objections. All the objections have been answered. Yes, you'll be able to borrow lots and lots of money. Uh, yes, there will be plenty of places for you to put uh, deposits in. We're, we're sort of lucky in having, what are we, out to $30 trillion of federal debt. Uh, those can back an enormous amount of 100% uh, of, of backed assets. And it's also practical. Uh, now, you know, you, you, economists come in the room and lawyers go, oh, you guys with your airy-fairy big ideas to change things. Uh, we do not have to reform the current dinosaurs. You just have to let it happen. Um, you just have to get out of the way. Um, allow equity-financed financial institutions to emerge. But recognize when you start one of those, you, you should get a gold star for, for non-systemic risk. Um, so if you allow uh, uh, financial institutions to emerge that are financed in ways that don't have run-prone liabilities, they don't need any more regulation than, say, Tesla. I mean, regulation against fraud and so forth. But they don't need asset risk regulation. Why? Because their liabilities do not pre present a systemic risk. I think if you allow people to innovate, uh, in ways that do not require extensive regulation. They will come. And you can also, you know, the, if you want to operate as a big bank with all the mountains and mountains of rules and the compliance department, all the rest of it, go for it. But if you want to start something else, similarly on the deposit side, we're actually getting closer to there than you think. 
Uh, a money market fund with enhanced, uh, tra with enhanced uh, transactions facility is a narrow bank. The Fed could just stop its legal war against narrow banks. Uh, central, we're talking about central bank digital currency. That, if used by financial intermediaries, that's a narrow bank as well. So stop the war against narrow bank, allow the equity financed financial institutions to emerge, keep the current system around, and it will simply wither. So you don't need any vast project of trying to reform, you know, City and Bank of America. Good luck with that. So it's practical. It ends financial crises forever. Uh, the basic architecture of allow lots of extremely high leverage, run-prone liabilities, but count on the regulators to spot the risks coming. That, that basic architecture has just failed so badly that I don't think we can ignore that fact and just keep layering it on. Thank you. All right. Um, let me start by just thanking Adam for putting this together and for inviting us to look 20 years out. Uh, it's not something we normally do. I was thinking about this. I was at the PIMCO Economic Secular Forum uh, in the spring. And there it's interesting because you're just looking five years out. And for people who are like looking for investable actions, like five years is a really long time frame. But I think there's an incredible value in trying to actually look two decades ahead, recognize we're going to have to have incredible humility, but just to take a moment to think, well, what might happen over those few decades? And so I, I really tried to take that to heart. Um, and I started, as you said, by looking back, right? And so if I look at the last 15 years, stability has dominated the conversation and with very, very good reason. I think 2008, we recognized our incredible costs. Uh, we really wanted to figure out how to build a more resilient system. And it's very easy to look at what's happened in the last couple of years, to look at what happened in the spring. I think, well, stability really needs to continue to dominate the conversation. It's also a safe place to be. Uh, it's really nice to be able to have both animating and limiting principles for government intervention. And so trying to understand where the externalities are, where the market failures are, and then divine mechanisms to, to address those is a really kind of elegant, safe place to be. It's where I've spent the last decade and a half. Uh, for the most part. Um, and my prediction going forward is that if financial regulation is going to succeed, or if we're actually going to have kind of the healthy debates that make us relevant, uh, we're actually going to have to move out of those spaces. And it's a little bit uncomfortable for me to say that, uh, because we don't yet have the animating and limiting principles. And so I started uh, down this road by looking at, well, where are we already doing this? Because we're already doing it a lot, and a lot more than we want to concede. So for example, the last couple of years, I've been working with Anil Kashyap at Chicago Booth to look at anti-money laundering laws, the infrastructure, and how it's now being used as well for sanctions purposes. There's a lot of times that we've both regretted uh, walking down this path together. We got to know each other, actually, because we both care about financial stability, and we're looking for another area. But what you realize is, because it's not elegant, nobody looks at it. So in contrast to financial stability, where there's been an incredibly healthy, broad, interdisciplinary debate with a bunch of academics, a bunch of policy folks, a bunch of industry folks, and we actually understand the trade-offs, there's discussions over what that actually means, there's at least been that conversation. There is no equivalent at all uh, when it comes to AML. There's a little conversation on the edges with compliance. Nonetheless, it doesn't mean we're not doing it. It means we're doing it in a way that's incredibly costly and incredibly ineffective. Uh, so cost estimates vary. LexisNexis comes out with annual surveys. Uh, their estimates are last year worldwide uh, cost a little bit over $220 billion in compliance costs related to AML and uh, sanctions infrastructure. And it's been going up steadily uh, at an incredible rate uh, in terms of efficacy. 
really hard to measure. There's very few kind of actual measurements out there, uh, but there have been some attempts to say, well, of the illicit flows, how much are we actually capturing? Those estimates vary uh, between 0.1% and the highest being at 1.1%. The most commonly cited factor is about 0.2%. Uh, and so the, clearly, like law, if you talk, if you look at the surveys of law enforcement, they are really reliant on this data. If we think about what happened when Russia invaded Ukraine, or even like earlier with Crimea, we really are going from sanctions against countries to trying to think about elites within those countries. And I think we're thinking about that in areas beyond Russia. So there's reasons to think going forward in the geopolitical environment we're going to be in, we really need this infrastructure to work well. But right now, we don't have a good theory for what we're trying to do or how we're trying to do it. And, as, and it's an area where I think you actually need public-private cooperation. So right now it's being done kind of through this compliance framework, but the challenge with a compliance framework is it assumes a baseline and you're just trying to get people to not deviate too far below that baseline. But as a practical matter, the technology, the data standardization that you would actually want to do this really well requires not just a compliance where you can come in with like enforcement and fines when people do it really badly, but actually like what is the, the, the type of public-private cooperative relationships we might want Imagine how we could actually do this significantly better than we are because we're doing such a bad job with it. And it's not just in terms of like the cost relative to the efficacy, but there's also huge collateral consequences. So I think given how bad we're doing, we could do a good, better job without further infringing on civic, uh, civil, civil uh, interests like privacy or actually dealing with some of the economic access issues. But those issues also come into play. I mean, there's fundamental trade-offs with respect to how we design the system over how do you actually go about protecting privacy and how do we actually create a situation where people have access to financial services, uh, things like cross-border flows, like when you put significant impediments into place, that actually really changes the nature of business and remittances that can otherwise happen. So what I'd like to see is just a more robust, much broader debate over how we think about actually building the system. Another area, uh, historically, is the US has played a huge role actually shaping the type of credit available and type of financial institutions. What that should actually look like, it's hard to know. Again, I don't have animating or limiting principles. I certainly don't want to go to unit banking. But right now, we have because we don't have those principles, there's very little robust discussion, again, of what we're already doing in these domains. So my pet interest here has been the federal home loan banks. I've never set out to study the federal home loan banks, but I've tended to look at, well, where are the markets doing something that's very different than what we think would happen? And then the federal home loan banks just show up. So it started like in 2007, 2008. I was like, well, where did banks actually go for liquidity? Because the Fed doesn't look like it was actually doing that much. The answer was the federal home loan banks. Of course, this happened again more recently with SBB. They had no borrowings outstanding at the end of 2022. By the time they failed, they were the biggest borrower from the federal home loan bank of San Francisco. The same thing had happened way back in the SNL crisis, right? So this is a chronic problem with the federal home loan banks because they have become a lender of second to last resort, but without any of the incentives and without any of the accountability that accompanies the Fed playing that role. And the Fed's perfectly happy with this in a lot of ways because it lets them off the hook of making difficult decisions. And it's a practical matter. When you're providing liquidity to distressed institutions, you're going to have to make difficult decisions that I think the federal home loan banks are incredibly poorly designed to make. So my first instinct is like, this whole thing is just a mess. We ought to get rid of it, particularly when we look more broadly, that really is a practical matter, uh, the great majority of the benefits. I mean, they are able to operate largely because they have a whole variety of statutory protections. Uh, that allow them to stand in front of the FDIC and all of the other depositors when a bank fails. And they're able to raise money incredibly cheaply because of a government backstop. 
uh, that actually gets embedded into law in a whole variety of areas where we assume that these can be treated, the debt that they issue can be treated like government securities. Um, but then I decided more recently to try to look a little more into the history. And it is a really interesting history because if you look at the first few decades, I decided, to my surprise, that there actually was a place for them uh, when they first started out. So they were created in 1932, actually under Hoover, so a little bit before the rest of the New Deal. At that point, your typical mortgage was less than five years. Um, and it was a balloon mortgage. And they said, look, you know, by actually, and of course, mortgages were provided by thrifts. Uh, which were uh, building associations, savings and loan associations. These were very small, community-oriented institutions that were inherently fragile, and they had no access to the Fed. And so at the time, they came in and they said, look, like, let's create an entity that effectively creates a backbone that makes these smaller institutions more viable. It played also eventually an important role, not only kind of raising money in the capital markets and providing it uh, to those banks, but also redistributing liquidity around those small uh, institutions. So when they had excess deposits, they could use the federal home loan banks to move that to other thrifts. And so for the first few decades, I would say it actually played a relatively helpful role um, in helping to promote some credit creation and enhance the viability of small institutions in an environment with incredible informational frictions uh, and where there was very significant liquidity constraints. 1980s, I'd say at the last point, is probably when all of that changed. We had a huge change, in, first of all, over time in terms of housing policy. So now the government does so much. The notion that the federal home loan banks can have a marginal impact there, I think, has largely been muted. Uh, banks and thrifts stopped having a meaningful difference between them. Thrifts were given access to the Fed. Uh, more recently, we've actually seen non uh, bank institutions uh, actually been playing the key role, providing mortgages, and they've done it all with no access to the federal home loan banks. And really, they became kind of a piggy bank for Congress because they operate not completely, but largely off balance sheet. So the way that they now help out housing is by having a small portion of their earnings go to affordable home loan projects. Uh, so we have all kinds of, and this is not the only entity is like this, but we have all kinds of entities that are like this, and right now we're just not talking about them, or we're saying we should get rid of them, but there's actually no will to do that. And so trying to figure out, well, maybe there is a role that they might be able to play with very small institutions in genuinely constrained areas of credit. Can we have a much, much, much smaller system that is actually something close, more tethered to what it originally did uh, could help to address some of the challenges we have in terms of local economic activity and also result in far fewer distortions. Uh, so the overarching idea, which I'm still developing, um, and again, I'm not going to go far with this because I'm just not going to do well as an academic trying to look 20 years ahead, is there's a lot of different domains right now with financial regulation where you actually have kind of these public-private ecosystems. They are absolutely pervasive. And right now, nobody politically is talking about it. Everybody, I think there's a tendency on the left to think about how can we have the government do more uh, through various types of public options. There is a tendency on the right to still want to have the government do less. And either side is grappling with the fact that there's public-private ecosystems that are pervasive and we don't have a good theory over what we want them to be doing or how. And as a result, we're allowing uh, kind of these messes to continue uh, without, um, without adequate conversation. Great. <clears throat> so in thinking about uh, where we're going to be in, in, in 20 uh, years from now, I, I tried to begin by kind of focusing on what I think it is that we know and trying maybe a little bit to 
build on 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 that. And um, one of the puzzles, and this is um, in this way, my my talk I think dovetails pretty nicely with what Catherine and John were saying, is that it is very easy uh, and accurate and powerful, particularly after the collapse of of Silicon Valley Bank, which. Uh, uh, it, it John accurately characterizes really a, uh, if I can, at least the implication for me, John, is, is a, a incredible uh, condemnation of the uh, ability of regulators to regulate. That I've spent a lot of time since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank looking at its financial statements and balance sheets. And you can go back six months before the collapse and look at their filings, their public filings and their balance sheet. And without even looking at the footnotes, the balance sheet reveals that a Silicon Valley bank uh, was insolvent. That is, you simply uh, look at the the notes, uh, and uh, you look at the at the at the at the record of the the value of their hold to maturity securities, and you you subtract from the the value listed on the balance sheet what the market value is, which is again not in the footnotes in the in the text of the balance sheet, and uh, you know their assets are low less than their liabilities. It's kind of an amazing condemnation. So what? Um, what, what I'm left with is the following puzzle, and this is what I try to kind of wrestle with in, in my paper for this conference, which is, um, you know, if, if, if sort of the, the question is, if things are so horrible with a regulatory system, and, and I think they are, don't misunderstand me, then, you know, why are we kind of so rich? Why is the economy, in, on many methods of, of calculation, doing so well? Uh, uh, stock market returns, corporate profits, uh, things like that. And of course, there are two possibilities uh, for this, right? Which is uh, the, 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 the first, uh, which is definitely a realistic possibility, which is, you know, we've kind of jumped off a, a hundred story building and we're floating down to the ground and uh, or creening toward the ground. And, you know, we're at like the 38th floor. And somebody says, how are you doing? I say, great. You know, everything's fine. Uh, oh, that's a possibility. We're just waiting and we'll be smushed. Uh, or alternatively, uh, and this is the, the uh, take on this that I kind of prefer, obviously, is, well, you know, there's maybe something else going on in this picture, right? And so... Um, and, and basically, the story that I think is right and will help us to sort of predict the future is uh, that kind of as bad as the uh, government sector is at regulating, uh, uh, that the uh, private sector is even better at innovating away from uh, some of the most negative consequences of, uh, of regulation. And the particular facet of this that I focus on in my paper is, um, uh, you know, is the uh, kind of political mess uh, in Washington. And the, 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 I was been intrigued by uh, the, uh, a number of uh, political scientists and people at the uh, Brookings Institution, uh, a, po a political science professor, uh, at Princeton, named Lena Mosley, who uh, these 
uh, who in a bunch of papers recently, basically uh, saying that, and you know, in addition to that, the the, the not so re, the fairly recent Fitch's downgrade of U.S. Uh, U.S. Uh, uh, debt. Uh, where political scientists are saying, you know, big threats to democracy from the cha political chaos in the United States, the election denial or denials, and uh, uh, and uh, and that institutional investors have to respond to threats to democratic institutions, uh, and uh, and that um, Fitch's downgrade. They said there's been a steady deterioration in standards of governance over the United States, including. Uh, uh, on fiscal and and debt matters. So basically, you know, looking at this, I try to look at this empirically a little bit, and I say, well, you know, what happened uh, around uh, uh, January 6th with the insurrection in the Capitol? And basically looking at things like uh, stock market performance, uh, the, the volatility index during the course of the day, uh, uh, initial public offering, foreign direct investment, GDP growth over that year, 2021, that um, uh, the economic and capital markets in the United States exhibit remarkable stability in the face of the regulatory failures and and political uh, uh, and political disruptions. And, and basically, I attribute this to two uh, causes. Uh, one is uh, that uh, that uh, politicians uh, st uh, happily uh, still on both the right and the left uh, internalize the cost of screwing up the economy. They get they're worried about getting thrown out of office. People are always looking at how are we doing unemployment, how's the stock market doing, and then we have basically kind of I don't know if I call them anti but counter democratic institutions. Like the, del uh, the the corporate law in the United States is outside the hands of the federal government. It's in the hands of basically the state of Delaware. Their view is a good thing. You have the Fed, which is fairly insulated from from politics. Uh, uh, we, we have a, a situation where we have we live in simultaneous. You know, and with this, we live simultaneously in in two worlds. One is the the economic world, the market world of markets, which are functioning well, and then the world of government and politics. And I think they increasingly become disjointed. And I see that that disjuncture to contribute continue over the next twenty years. And I view that as a good thing. Thank you. All right. Uh, well, thanks. It's great to be here. And also, uh, this is my first event uh, for uh, the, the Grace Center uh, since uh, Boyden's uh, passing. And so I just wanted to express my uh, admiration for the man and, um, um, and uh, just say what an honor it is to be here uh, with this distinguished uh, panel. So um, I guess the idea is we're looking forward 20 years. Um, I spent a year, as Paolo mentioned, as the chair of the CFPB task force on consumer financial uh, law. We wrote an 800-page report uh, with 101 recommendations. So I'm going to read that to you uh, today <laughs> uh, on the future of financial. No. Um, so if you, this will be the Cliff Notes version of uh, of that. If you want, uh, if you want more. Uh, but I think that what this does is my paper is entitled uh, um, uh, "Looking Forward by Looking Back." Um, and the idea here is, is um, interestingly captured in a book I wrote, uh, co-authored a few years ago, Consumer Credit in the American Economy, 
And the great Vernon Smith, uh, the Nobel laureate, actually wrote a blurb uh, for the cover of the book. And um, Vernon didn't really know much about uh, um, consumer finance, but he's a genius. He started reading the book and kind of got taken into it. And the blurb he said was that um, consumer finance and consumer financial regulation reveals an emergent order of behavioral and parallel institutional rules, um, emergent or evolution of an emergent order of behavioral and parallel institutional rules with no um, uh, identifiable leader, right? And that's sort of the idea that I'm going to say here in predicting the future and what the future of consumer financial regulation should look like is what we've seen over time is the reality is, is that we see technological changes that dramatically impact uh, consu- uh, um, uh, con- the delivery of consumer financial products. Um, we see changes of consumer preferences that match up with that um, and show why consumers want to use Uh, consumer finance as well as uh, various products. And then what we see over and over again is a combination of entrenched special interests who try to block uh, these evolutions and really elite preferences of people who who think other people shouldn't be allowed to have a, a consumer credit that end up creating this this dysfunction where you get these old stupid rules uh, that uh, um, the regulators try to impose on people. People sort of work around it. It ends up being counterproductive, and essentially, finally, the tension snaps, um, and we're forced into a new regulatory regime. And so we can kind of see this in three cycles. I call it the pre-modern, the modern, and the future that we'll talk about on sort of 50-year cycles. So so let's go back to the beginning. Um, understanding consumer finance, even Adam Smith, of all people, didn't understand consumer finance. Adam Smith favored usury regulations for consumers because he had this kind of crazy idea that consumer finance, consumer credit was you know, consumption, just sort of borrowing against the future to consume today, which is different from productive uh, uh, credit uh, in, in his view, which is what businesses did. Uh, Jeremy Bentham's In Defense of Usury was written in response to Adam Smith, um, and Bentham won the intellectual argument, but not the policy argument, as we see that people are still talking now about bringing back usury ceilings and and that sort of thing. Um, And so it's important to understand why Smith was wrong, because this kind of guides why consumers want to use consumer credit. Um, It turns out, overwhelmingly, what consumers use credit for is productive purposes, and that there are good reasons, uh, rational reasons, why consumers want to shift the timing of consumption for two reasons. First is just a life cycle idea, which is early in your life, you have a very high demand uh, for, for credit and a low supply. When you graduate from college or whatever, you, you're probably illiquid. Uh, you're probably insolvent if you've got student loans, right? Um, but Think about what you have to do. You have to go out, you have to move to a new city, start a job, get a wardrobe, get maybe get a car, get an apartment, get furniture, do all these sorts of things. And you're at a period of your life where you have the least access to credit and the highest demand uh, for credit. Um, and so what do you do? You borrow, right? And then you start getting on your feet. And the next thing you decide you're gonna do is you know, get married. And then what's really fun then is you get to have kids because everybody knows they're really cheap, uh, right? Uh, so you got to buy a house and maybe another car. But, um, but basically the idea here is as early in your life you're a borrower. 
in the in your as you move into middle age, you become a lender, right? This is people don't think of putting your money in the bank as lending to the bank, but as uh, John said, that's what it is. And then you you retire at the end. Um, we also see that you know uh, uh, it's productive in the sense of accelerating the timing of the purchase of certain goods. Student loans are obvious. It would be stupid to say save up. Uh, so that then, you know, save up for 20 years and then you can go to college and get a degree so that then you'll be more productive, right? Mortgages, houses, that sort of thing. And so this is the demand that drives credit. And so what we see then um, is as we go through time, so at the end of the 19th century, farmers move to the cities, immigrants come in, we first get the wage economy. It runs up against all these stupid old usury ceilings that we had in the past. And what do we see? Loan sharks proliferate. Consumers need access to credit to deal with living in the city and deal with the wage economy. And so what ends up happening is loan sharks step forward, illegal lenders step forward to, uh, to, to fill the gap. The Russell Sage Foundation at the time, around the 1920s, starts lobbying for the Uniform Small Loan Law, which was designed to raise usury ceilings and essentially allow consumers to get access to credit in a competitive transparent market. That worked great. We saw a great boom in uh, the 20s uh, and teens and 20s um, in consumer finance. And then the Great Depression hit. Stop me if you've heard this story before. People decided, well, one of the reasons we had the Great Depression was consumers had too much access to credit. (laughs) So what was the response that came out of the, uh, uh, the Great Depression? Ratchet down usury ceilings. And they even had these ideas that consumer credit should be like a public utility. And so they have adopted, for example, the fourth edition of the Uniform Small Loan Law, created convenience or certificates of convenience and necessity before you could open a new small loan business. What happened? Consumers lost access to credit, especially lower class consumers. By the 1960s, the Senate was reporting, a Senate report said that loan sharking was the second largest revenue source of the mafia. Um, the loan sharking market was estimated in 1970 to be $10 billion at that time, which is about $69 billion in today's money. To give you a sense, it's about twice the size of the entire payday loan market was what was estimated to be the loan sharking market uh, in the 1970s. Um, and so what we saw was consumers needed credit. And what was going on? We saw the great migration to the suburbs. The, uh, Levittown was, was basically founded by credit. Right. The mortgage. Now you need a car. Now you need furniture, all the modern appliances. Right. And what we see is the migration to the suburbs in the post-war era was funded by consumer credit. Now, for middle class people, that was largely met by retailers. Why? Because retailers could evade usury ceilings simply by marking up the price of their goods to cover to bury the uh, the cost of uh, the money they were losing on the consumer finance and the goods. Lower income people, however, got hammered. Right. So all of us remember Williams versus Walker Thomas, uh, the famous case, if you're if you're a lawyer. Right. What was going on there? It turns out Washington, D.C. literally had no small loan businesses in Washington, D.C. Why? Because Washington, D.C. had one of the strictest usury ceilings in the country. So what you saw was this development of this so-called ghetto finance system where low income people and especially inner city people could all they people, as I said, always buy things like furniture and things like that on credit, as she did, right? But what, what, what was it? You could only get it from somebody who could evade the usury ceilings by bearing into the price of their goods, right? And so basically, low-income people were in thrall to these, uh, uh, these shoddy lenders uh, in the city 
who could basically tie the, uh, the goods uh, uh, together. So what we saw was another wave of reformers 50 years after the first in the 1970s. The National Commission on Consumer Finance um, is founded. They basically have one central thing, which is more competition and get rid of usury ceilings. Right. The other thing that was going on is we saw a rise of a national economy at this time. In particular, department stores adopted the idea that department stores like Sears that had branches all throughout the country, right, they would have a, uh, a centralized um, uh, credit system in a lot of these stores. The other thing was we saw um, technological developments again, which is debt collection is a good example. The declining cost of Long-distance phone calls made it more feasible to collect debts across state line, which then created problems for the old state and local-based system of regulation. So what do we see in the 70s? We see first a movement towards deregulation to, because of the problem of loan sharks and to try to increase access for, uh, for lower-income con uh, consumers. And we see this rise to the national level to deal with the increasing interstate nature of the, uh, the product. Right. That obviously leads us to today, 50 years later, right, 1920, 1970, 2020, where are we today? We're in the world of the Internet, right? We're in the world of digital, which is not local, which is not national. It's kind of nowhere, right? Um, and that obviously gives us a sense of what we're looking at now. We're looking at fintech. We're looking at different ways that consumers engage in disclosures and uh, consume disclosures. I'm almost done. And then, um, um, and what are we seeing again? Instead, we're seeing the same stupid ideas coming back. The Credit Card Act, Dodd-Frank, the Durbin Amendment, right? We've actually had a proposal two weeks ago by Josh Hawley to put uh, interest rate ceilings on credit cards, right? I mean, it's insane. It's like, how many times do we have to learn this lesson over and over again? The lesson here, and I'll close with this, is the great F.A. Hayek um, in his Nobel lecture said, um, when you're thinking about how to do regulation, he said, policymakers should not try to shape the results as a craftsman shapes his handiwork, but to cultivate a growth by providing the appropriate environment and the manner in which a gardener does this for plants. Right? The way we should th be thinking about consumer finance, how do consumers use it, what is the technology, and let's allow that to flourish and allow the spontaneous evolution to take place. Thanks. Thank you for this like very interesting presentation. And like before we open up the floor for question, any common reaction to each other's presentation? If, I have a yeah. question for John. <laughs> and I have a question for Kate. So <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, they're all interesting. I mean, the interesting question is, what are we trying to solve for? And one is financial crises, where you assume that crises are the challenge and that government intervention is only going to be what is necessary to avert the challenge. Um, and like that, like that was the paradigm that I was operating in for a long time after 08 and 09. And yet I look more recently, and you, you, rec you alluded to this at the beginning of your talk. I mean, the Bank of England decided they can't allow pension funds to suffer losses on long-dated guilts. 
we saw not just an intervention into the corporate bond market, but an incredibly rapid intervention. I mean, things were scary in the spring of 2020, but the, the pace of intervention was huge. We've learned that Signature Bank was systemically important such that the SRE should be invoked. And so it's not, I don't think I disagree with anything that you're saying. I mean, I think part of the point, which I think is huge, is if the, like, the Fed's going to allow money market mutual funds to effectively become narrow banks through the overnight reverse repo facility, why are they still pretending that like the elasticity of uh, you know the ease through which people can exit uh, that gets created through narrow banks justifies uh, not allowing these things to be explicitly chartered um, so I don't, I don't think I agree, disagree with anything that you are saying in terms of the the importance of this model but I'm curious over how much you think is actually going to solve uh, with respect to the extent of moral hazard and expectation of government intervention. Um, well, I think you're exactly right to ask. The, the one thing I challenge is, you didn't make the assertion, but um, just because a politician decides to do something doesn't mean that that was the right thing to do. Uh, and the good old uh, framework that before you regulate, identify the externality of the public good, at least be forced to come up with some sort of argument about that is a good one. I, I don't... Why can't holders of corporate bonds take mark-to-market losses? That does not seem to me like an externality of public good. So, you know, some politicians decided or officials decided that was a terrible thing to happen. I think we're allowed, still allowed to, to challenge that. And um, just this answers both you and, and a little bit, uh, Jonathan. I was worried about uh, Jonathan's um, vision that, uh, don't worry, innovation will get us around bad, bad regulation. Because there is an externality in financial regulation. Um, the temptation to print money, <laughs> temptation to have cheap, run-prone financing, uh, the, the run is an externality. There needs to be some regulation. I'm, I'm as good a card-carrying libertarian as anybody else. <laughs> but this is a case where you need some regulation. And a lot of the innovation was to get around the regulations and figure out how to print money. The special purpose vehicle is just the classic example. Great financial innovation seems like, oh, wait a minute. We issue overnight debt to buy uh, complex mortgage-backed securities. That's called a bank, except it doesn't have capital controls. That's, that's an innovation, but it was an innovation around the regulation yep. to print money, which is an externality because it ran. So, so there, there is an externality, but I, I favor being clear about what it is and not just taking, oh, we had to save the world. Let's pat us on the back. One more river of money and we save the world, and we have to get ready to do it all again, I, I think is a dangerous thing. Now, can I ask my yep, question to Kate? Yeah. Even though I'm, I'm hogging the stage. <laughs> I thought what you said was, was fascinating, and specifically on sanctions. You, you called for a conversation, and so I want to press you on what the answer to that conversation is. Because what strikes me is there, there's... Sanctions are sort of like antibiotics. Um, they cure things, but then they cause resistance. Um, and as the more we sanction, the more we uh, create the incentive to, for people to find alternatives around sanctions. I'm, I'm sort of aware that you know China is building another system, not to undermine the dollar for everyday transactions, but so that when the day comes, they can buy and sell all they want, you know, break glass in, in case of emergency. The more we sanction, the more they build that uh, sort of thing. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm worried about the Canadian truckers. We're, we're debanking, we're sanctioning like there's no tomorrow. Uh, and, and that not only goes into civil liberties, but that it goes into building the antibiotic resistance. And you mentioned we're, we're now sanctioning elites in other countries as well as 
countries themselves. Isn't that such a good idea? Should we be telling the Russian oligarchs no, or should we be telling them, take your money, bring it to the U.S., take it out of Russia? Uh, you know, may, maybe going on to sanctioning elites in other countries isn't such a great idea. So that, that anyway, the, it doesn't seem like an obvious, oh, yes, just enforce the rules and make more rules question. I forgot. I mean, I think I completely agree with that. And that's the conversation I want us to be having, and I feel like we're not having it. I mean, so what's really interesting to me right now is we're not having a conversation over normally when should we be using these tools, when should we not be using these tools, and how much have they practically changed? I mean, like Fourth Amendment doctrine for lawyers, we know it's a mess, but we originally said, you know, the Bank Secrecy Act, which is the kind of origins of all of this, was totally fine because you don't have any expectation of privacy effectively in the information that your bank holds. By contrast, like cell phone locating data, that's so specific, you do have a protection. But it's a practical matter now. Every, I live in New York. Every time I get on the subway, I'm using my credit card. So like the notion that there's like a huge difference for the amount of information that's available has really changed in a world of digital micropayments. So I mean, the whole area is, I, I, I really think, actually a mess. And we're not having a healthy conversation. And then we're allowing this not only to go on with sanctions, but like cyber. I mean, I think there is a lot of conversations that just don't fit for better for worse, a market failure framework where you say, like, look, huge vulnerability that we have for national security purposes are all of the banks. I mean, the risk is not people trying to come in and, like, you know, find ways to get money. Like, that's going to happen, but the banks are kind of, like, arming up against that. It's that we have an infrastructure that you could actually decapacitate uh, in a really meaningful way. Like, similarly with the GSEs. I mean, the Fannie and Freddie are the bigger issues. Like, they're sitting in conservatorship. I don't know anybody who thinks that's optimal, but we're, like, so afraid of having the conversation. We're allowing these massively suboptimal status quo to continue without there being conversation. And then we're having like another conversation about stability. And I agree, stability, stability for us for the last 15 years. I like your proposal. I don't think we get away from it. But I would just love to see more of the conversation over like what should these other domains look like? Like what is the right way to do them? Because uh, we're not having them. And it doesn't mean it's not happening. It just means for me it's happening in a really, really suboptimal way. There's uh, one uh, thing that surprised me a little bit, John, what you were saying, and I, it was um, that all we need to do to get to essentially a world in which there's a better, uh, you know, uh, more sane, financial institutions have saner balance sheets, better, less of mismatch between various characteristics of assets and liabilities, is to get out of the way. I guess my only concern is that in order for that to be right, we have to define getting out of the way really broadly. Like, as long as there's a positively sloped yield curve and we're declaring that mid-size and small-size and big-size banks are too big to fail, then, uh, you know, these, uh, then, then, then uh, these traditional kinds of banks like SVB and others are going to be able to... Uh, you know, attract capital pretty easily. So we're, it seems to me we're going to need. I mean, I um, to get where we want, where I think we, you and I both agree, we want to go would require fairly radical change, not just getting out of the way. I was wondering if. Thank you for letting me clarify that. No, <laughs> there is an externality. The temptation to print money is strong. You can't just get out of the way. <clears throat> you need not no regulation. You need effective uh, regulation. Um, I what I what I wanted to. Um, emphasizes we don't have to have a big reform of the current system 
in sense of you know fix Citibank's balance sheet, mm-hmm. uh, get out of the way and allow <coughs> um, narrow deposit takers, equity finance bankers to emerge. But the equity finance bankers will have the same temptation. It's always fun to print money. <laughs> it's always fun to take short-term run-prone financing. You need a reg- you, you know they they need to be stopped from doing that. And the simple way is once you start doing that, fine. Welcome to you know the highly regulated sclerotic system if you're going to do that. Uh, but you, yes, you can't just get out of the way. You need to you need to get out of the way of letting those emerge, but emerge subject to the to the guardrail. No, you shall not issue run prone short term financing. I mean, it's it's sort of funny to me. Maybe you're right. I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking about you know your what you were saying about let's say. You know, uh, the Lehman Brothers short-term financing repo market of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, subprime mortgages and CDOs and, and, and the like, that the people who are, who are buying uh, uh, these financial instruments knowing that they're rolling over every day and, the, and that uh, 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 the, the funds are being used to finance long-term uh, assets and the, the house of cards will come inevitably come tumbling down. It, I mean, it seems to me that the, there has to it, that that uh, uh, you know that seems to me just a, a standard case where uh, you know certain market discipline would solve the problem. That you when the music stops, you allow the people who've in, been been doing this financing to go broke. Uh, um, you can tolerate individual runs. You can't tolerate systemic runs. So there is this problem of when the system goes broke, you the you, the run comes in. You know, Ben Bernanke got a Nobel Prize, I think, rightly for pointing out that when all the institutions go broke, there's no one left with the infrastructure to make new loans. Yeah. Uh, and um, and the uh, you know the, the government in charge is going to bail out ex post no matter what. So you got to fix the system right. ex ante so yeah. uh, so it doesn't happen. Somebody has to bear risk. Bearing risk is not a bad thing. Earning rewards for bearing risk is not a bad thing. But then you have to bear the risk. And our system is private gain in good times, public bearing of the risk in bad times. Right. And it's, it's, we, we have to get around the idea that somebody somewhere losing money is a systemic problem. No, you lose money in the bad times because you were making it the good times. You know, just don't tear down the system with you. Right. I have a question for my colleagues on the panel. The first one's for Catherine and John both. Uh, um, Catherine, you talk about the federal home loan banks, which is good, but um, the, uh, how many times do we have to have mortgage banking crises? I see Peter Wallison over here probably about to jump out of his seat. Right? How many times do we have to have our mortgage system destroy our financial system before we realize the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage with an unlimited right to prepay is the most idiotic <laughs> Uh, financial vehicle that's ever been invented. There's a reason why we're the only ones in the world who have it. I mean, you mentioned the first, you know, during the Great Depression, we had the problem of balloon payments and they pulled the, they conjured this thing out of the air, uh, you know, the 30-year fixed rate mortgage uh, type idea in order to stretch out payments. Savings and loan crisis was caused by that, right? Um, it created a problem during the 2008 financial crisis, everything with uh, real estate. So we've Got that on one hand, and we've got, uh, you know, the Charlie Calamira's point about fragile by design, the entanglement, the purposeful entanglement of politics with the financial system in order to accomplish these social goals, and in particular, uh, uh, particular um, housing finance uh, type goals. Um, and it just seems to me, yeah, I mean, we've got to focus on, the, um, on, on one side of it, but until we have a more sensible mortgage arrangement, I think we're going to have um, these recurrent uh, uh, crises. 
Um, so I'd just be interested in in that. I mean, neither of you mentioned the Calamiris fragile by design hypothesis, or you know, uh, in your in your paper. But it seemed like it kind of hangs over both of them. John, I had a question for you um, about the political risk uh, type things, and you know. I would never suggest that academic political scientists might not actually know that much about politics, um, you know, because they're experts, right? But it does turn out we do see political risk uh, in the system. So when uh, Obama, you know, illegally diverted the TARP funds and, you know, plundered the creditors at Chrysler uh, and General Motors, we saw markets adjust, uh, which is the empirical studies suggest that after that, a risk premium appeared for lending to companies. If you're going to be a creditor and you're going to lend to a company in a heavily unionized industry, new bond covenants emerged that basically created new protections against that sort of political risk of the government intervening to rearrange priorities in bankruptcy. That's what I'm just wondering is, as reading this, it's like maybe Marcus just realized this was all just a sideshow. Right. The political scientists can wring their hands about uh, about all this. But, you know, in 2018, two thirds of Democrats literally thought that the Russians had hacked into American computer systems to win the election for Donald Trump. Right. Two thirds of Democrats thought that they were hacking computer systems and adjusted the vote tallies. Right. So this idea of election denial and challenge and all that sort of stuff, maybe it's just all a sideshow. Maybe the alternative hypothesis is markets don't see this to be a serious problem of political uncertainty. And when they do, as with the auto bailouts, uh, they actually respond. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't I don't disagree with that at all. I, I do think that. Um uh, that they're going to be the, the market clearly registers consequences in terms of changes in prices and interest rates when the government does uh, does does stupid things. I, and I didn't in any way, shape, or form mean to suggest anything uh, anything to the contrary. In fact, that that was sort of my point. Actually, is that uh, the markets the markets do do respond, and they often and they often uh, 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 anticipate things. It's, mm -hmm. it's the um, we haven't. Um, my basic point was we haven't in, su suffered uh, the uh, the kind of doomsday catastrophic consequences mm. and kind of economic meltdown that one one might think, given some of the incredible uh, craziness of government intervention. Okay, I want to respond to Todd. In part, just to praise what you had said earlier. At this end of the table, I, I was focusing on financial regulation uh, towards crises and runs um, because I only had 10 minutes. And, and what you point out is, of course, the, all the other financial regulation also exists, and a lot of it's really dumb. Mm -hmm. And I love the way we were charged to think about the future, and you brought us to the past because <laughs> the same bad ideas come up over and over again. And having a historical understanding of, you know, I do inflation. Diocletian went after greed, <laughs> greed and, the, and the middlemen and so forth. And, we're, you know, we're at it right all over again. Um, but uh, you're exactly right. It's, we're, we're, uh, there's a lot of sand in the gears in the rest of our financial system. The 30-year fix, and, and also that it's not transferable. Right now, we have a problem that uh, people aren't willing to sell their houses because even though they need to move, they're right. good jobs across the country, but they got the 1% fixed rate mortgage. And among right. the other curiosities of it, 
Uh, it's you, you can refinance down, but you can't take it somewhere else. By the way, I'm a finance professor. I don't know any finance professor who can calculate when it's optimal to refinance <laughs> a mortgage in the downward. There's a very complicated option is, pricing yep. problem. Nobody, I know, it's just ridiculous that it's bundled in there. Uh, and what's our mortgage system? Our mortgage system is not just the, the, this sort of 30-year fixed thing invented in the Depression. Funneled into, almost all is now securitized by the federal government. The funneled into Fannie and Freddie, the taxpayer guarantee of all mortgages in the U.S. stays with us. I mean, it's something else that we promised we'd fix in the Dodd-Frank era mm-hmm. and just kind of sits there and languishes. We go to conferences. Everybody complains. <laughs> nothing ever happens on it. And one of, the, uh, one of the effects of this is the lack of innovation. Actually, a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage with a, with a downward refinancing option, that's an interesting product. But we recently rehabbed our house do you know how many different light fixtures there are? My, my, my wife made me go look at light fixtures. I couldn't believe it. But relative to that, the number of mortgage products is actually fairly, you know, suppose I want a 30-year fixed rate, but I wanted the right to transfer it to a, a new, a new right. place. That's actually, 30-year fixed is, really helps you plan. You yeah. know, that, that's a nice thing. But maybe I want to take that financial product with that interest rate risk exposure, but the right to move it to another town. Well, for a price, somebody should be offering me that. Yep. Nope, sorry, not available. Mm. Why? Because it's not in the list of things that Fannie and Freddie will securitize, and our entire mortgage market goes through what will be securitized by the U.S. taxpayer. Ugh! Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, so I mean, I don't know if I, I, I'm not fully on board with making the 30-year amortizing mortgage the target of all of the problems. And I do think, I, I mean, John hit some of the, the other key points, is, I mean, that does allow some stable stability in terms of people's ability to access homes and then actually build up savings over time. And if you look at 2007, 2008, it was the 2 and 28s and the 3 and 27s where you had these short-term fix and then balloons. And we look at what's happening in Canada right now, and actually negative amortizing mortgages are everywhere because people wanted to have a fixed monthly rate. And how do you combine a fixed monthly rate with an adjustable rate mortgage is through negative amortization. And so I, it, it scares me actually right now to look at what's going on in Canada. I think the bigger challenges, and this is where John was already getting, is it's not just that this product is available, it's that there's a, it's, a, it's part of a much broader infrastructure uh, where the government is on a whole variety of, of other things, uh, some of which make sense, a lot of which don't make sense. Uh, in terms of how they all fit together. And so, again, for me, like that's just like the conversation that we need to be having. And instead, we're all kind of looking the other way as this is what's dictating the entire shape of the mortgage market. And that is actually what has enabled Rocket to become the biggest issuer of mortgages, despite the fact that, I mean, going back to liquidity problems, like they have no access to government-backed liquidity, and that turned out not to be an issue in 2020 because we had a huge shock to the economy that was accompanied by an increased demand for housing. Uh, but we cannot take for granted that that's what it's going to look like in the future. So I mean, I think there's a lot of things to talk about with housing. I don't know if I would make the the 30-year amortizing <laughs> mortgage the the problem that we need to solve. Perfect. So I think we have 20 more minutes. For Q&A. yeah, for questions. So, if there's anybody in the audience that have a question, I have a just to I have a general question for the for, for the speakers. Like, so you know, as a European and American citizen, so Italian and American, um, I'm very interested in cross-border dynamics and like 
many of you mentioned tension with foreign nations and Ambassador Gray, as an ambassador to EU, care a lot about access to foreign markets and the importance of having stable range. Do you, so one, one, quick, one big question is like, in terms of the future of financial relation, what do you think is going to be the role uh, of cross-border coordination, cross-border dialogue? Uh, or other possible mechanism to access to markets. And the other question is that you know we're thinking about financial future, the future of financial relation, and something that we have not discussed a lot is technology. And until like Silicon Valley Bank and FTX, tech was going to disrupt the financial system, provide alternatives. So you know, international organizations like BIS and FSB, they've been talking about the role of t technology as supplemental approach to supervision and regulation of markets and financial institutions? So like, any thoughts on these two aspects? When I hear the words coordination and well, similarly public-private partnership, my, my hair stands up. I like competition. Uh, coordination is, uh, you know, often a byword for we all get together and, and through the consumer and the taxpayer more effectively. <laughs> uh, and, and uh, you know, as we see in the states, the U.S., you know, Comp regulatory competition between tax competition between the states we like uh, between the states uh, and and I worry about too much coordination uh, um, globally. I was going to ask. So I agree with that. I, I guess, but one I, I wanted to maybe the most successful example of international coordination in history. I guess would be the uh, bank, the Basel Capital Accords, right, which are truly international and seem to have real teeth. So, and they're working like a charm, aren't they? I mean, <laughs> yeah. too big to fail is all completely ended. Well, I don't think, well, I think we have to blame, like, you know, I think we can blame Dodd-Frank for that. I don't know that we can blame. Uh, we could still have uh, uh, capital requirements. They would be, and, and allow banks to fail. There's nothing in the capital requirements that... You know, stop a local regulator from putting a bank, you know, allowing just, a bank to out of business. I just want much more capital requirements. You, okay, yeah. I would say, I would dish on on this issue because I do think that there's a place, I mean, there are going to be spillover effects in other countries when you have bank failures. And I think there's reasons not to just have trust that other jurisdictions are going to get it right. So not for setting optimal regulation, but in terms of setting like a base floor, there was a place, I think, for Basel coming in. They've never done a perfect job with it. We can like tweak with the different things. But I think having some degree of convergence over baseline for situations where there are cross-border spillovers are important. And going back to Paolo's questions, I'm worried about that, actually. I mean, I think there's been a sufficiently strong, growing skepticism around kind of the perceptions of technocratic control. Some of that has been a really healthy debate, but I think some of it has the potential to undermine like a lot of some of the international coordination. And I think there are issues where some degree of international coordination for me are are useful. And I don't think we actually have a good answer for how we do it going forward. I mean, the hard thing, and I'm, I'm kind of more maybe more agnostic than I was letting on. In, in other words, so two quick points on, on the, this one is, one could, and I've heard this pretty persuasive, that you could sort of blame failures like SVB on these capital accords, right? Like, why were they had they had money in the treasuries because they didn't have to have any capital under the Basel agreements to offset the money that they you know, the, their, the assets they had in the in these in these mortgages? And I guess the question, and I know the answer, is sort of the counterfactual, like. What would, I mean, we all agree, I think, that, we, 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 right, you and I, Kate, would agree with John Cochran that we, we need capital requirements on, on banks. So the question is sort of the counterfactual, which is in the absence of international coordination 
like what would bank capital requirements look like? And the received wisdom, and I'm not sure it's no. wrong, which leads me to kind of be in your camp, is um, that, that we, they would be, we, they'd, it would be sort of even worse. There'd be kind of a, a race to the bottom and regu inter regulators would, would be kind of captured by banks and have kind of even weaker. But I don't know that that's right. It's just a conjecture. A lot of the need for capital requirements is uh, um, second best given that we know we're going to bail them out. A lot of yep. the fintech companies, uh, which were clearly not going to get bailed out, they voluntarily uh, issue a lot of capital. The word yep. is issue, not hold, by the way. They voluntarily issue a lot of capital because no one's going to lend the money without a capital buffer. Uh, so it's really... Uh, right. it's Absolutely. <laughs> I'll uh, say, if, if I could say a few words uh, on, on, on both those points. The first is, we mentioned AML, um, and that's sort of, one of the things that was striking to me when I was doing the CFPB task force, so we talked to all of the financial regulators. Have any of you ever really tried to think about what the effect of AML laws are on financial inclusion, for example, right? Which is for low-income people, especially people who might be from a country that uh, they're perfectly innocent, right? But things like remittances, things like people are from certain countries, if they don't have a lot of money, the bank just doesn't want to deal with them. It's not worth the regulatory hassle. And what was kind of shocking to me is not a single financial regulator has ever seems to have seriously asked, what is the impact of our EML laws uh, on financial inclusion and uh, uh, sorts of things? Um, second thing I just sort of mentioned is on, on the, um, the technology, uh, which is, uh, you know, technology really is a thing here, right? I mean, the obvious example is credit scoring, but it really goes to information, uh, which is Stiglitz, and, you know, Stiglitz won the Nobel Prize in part for pointing out that um, there's an information asymmetry with consumer finance. Information is the way we get around that, right? And what we have now is this sort of double-edged sword, which is if we tried to create today's, the, today, the, the consumer reporting credit reporting system is a miracle when you think about it, right? It's a marvel that we have these robust uh, systems that allow access to credit by ordinary people, which was always a problem. What's amazing about that, though, is somebody came up with the idea of our consumer reporting system today. There's no way it would ever be thought legal. What we're going to do is we're going to report without your permission to third parties your performance on debt, uh, and then they'll use it in deciding whether to give you uh, a finance, right? Um, because we have this weird idea about sort of information, that sort of thing. And so, so there's these benefits and big data in you know the novel underwriting that things that fintechs use and that, that sort of thing. They have a system like that in, in Europe, this sort of centralized, because they have hyper concerns about privacy that, that, that and I think it evolved there as well okay, right yeah, but yeah, but yeah. yeah and so but not as ro robustly as here other countries yeah. uh, don't yeah. but the other half of that though is there is a new threat that I forgot to mention which is that there is now the ability to use information in this te financial technology to control people right we saw this during the Obama administration with operation choke point um, we're seeing it today with debanking um, we saw it uh, it was prompted by John observing the Canadian truckers right, uh, which is the use of the financial system to sort of weaponize it against uh, political enemies and uh, products and people that you don't like um, is a problem. It's going to become a bigger problem. I will cite again also a statistic. Two-thirds of Democrats in this country agreed with uh, Justin Trudeau when he, shut, uh, when he froze the bank accounts of the Canadian truckers. Um, so the use of the financial system as a political tool um, I think is a is, is a growing threat. Just think of it this way. Just think if um, uh, if they could have used it against Martin Luther King, 
and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to say, well, look, obviously you're a conspiracy to do what the truckers did, break the law and create a public nuisance, uh, right? That's basically what the, uh, the logic is. And today, the ability to use this control over the financial system to go at, to, to kind of, for political ends, and that's not even considering the possibility of central bank digital currency uh, and the mischief that could be caused by that. I, I want to just cheer that without saying it all over again, because that's like incredibly important. I also want to, John brought up Silicon Valley Bank, which I want to go back to just a little bit. It's a very instructive example. For one, they followed all the rules. The rules said you have, you're allowed to put long-term treasuries and hold the maturity bucket, and you don't have to market them to market. Uh, there was no the problem with Silicon Valley Bank is a combination of lots of uh, uh, lots of uninsured uh, deposits and hold to maturity accounting on the assets, and there was no rule uniting those two. <clears throat> so they followed the rules, and in fact, this is the problem of a rule-based system. I'm not a lawyer, but I think there's a good case that they could have, if a regulator had said, you've got a horrible mismatch here, they said, get out of my office. I'm following all the rules. I'm allowed to use hold to maturity uh, accounting on the assets. There's nothing wrong against uninsured deposits. I'm doing my patriotic duty to hold deposits for the American economy. Get out of my office. You have no right to object to this. It's a problem. So what do we, you know, we have 100,000 rules. Oh, we'll add a new one. Sorry, you can't combine hold to maturity accounting and uh, and uh, lots of uninsured deposits. Well, you know, we already have 100,000 rules. Uh, good luck with that uh, approach. And another part of Silicon Valley Bank that really, I think, was, it was revealing to me. At the time, so we were in a, we, inflation broke out for a year. Everybody knew the Fed was going to raise interest rates. The Fed knew the Fed was going to raise interest <laughs> rates. We're just sitting, you know, we're sitting on the tarmac waiting for air traffic control. And usually the pilot says, ladies and gentlemen, please fasten your seatbelts. But that whole year, the stress tests, where the regulatory half of the Fed asks banks what's going on, was asking banks, what happens to you if interest rates go down? <laughs> what if we replay 2008? I mean, the, the, how could you not be asking every bank in the, in the country, hey, interest rates are going to go up. You guys that have been uh, riding the yield curve for about uh, 25 years now, get ready. Nope. Nope, they were asking them, what if interest rates go down? I just want to add one footnote to what you said. Please. The Silicon Valley Bank thing, which is um, kind of a little bit my point about Delaware law and state law. So you're absolutely right from the standpoint of federal banking regulation. Uh, uh, Silicon Valley has it got to show inflated equity capital because of their ability to to, they're, they're, to put his, the historical value of these bonds rather than their market value on their balance sheet. But if they had tried to pay a dividend or effectuate a share repurchase of their stock, um, uh, those uh, the they would be limited by state law, which makes the directors personally liable for making distributions when the bank is insolvent. And under state law, they'd have to look at market values. They couldn't look at historical values. So they're, 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 uh, they're but, but. There's but, some sensible rules is what you're saying. There's some, but not, not too many. I was just going to close with, now we are in the situation that all deposits are insured. Right. Everybody yeah. expects, and, and. Despite <laughs> Barney Frank famously saying, we end, we've ended too big to fail. Right? So I, I just thought that's the lesson that I took on, on the regulatory architecture is fun. If you can't get this one right after 15 years, heavens, we got to try something. Thank you. Um, I had a, a question for Professor Zwicky um, uh, regarding the um, the usury 
stupid usury laws. And I, 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 my question is, I guess, it's not just Adam Smith. Um, I think every major religion has um, has prohibited usury laws, and also I think most states, going back to colonial times, had had some um, had usury laws. So I'm just curious: is this beyond Adam Smith? Is have have has Western civilization and, and human history not understood consumer finance until until when and then what changed? Uh, well, most people still don't understand consumer finance, um, <laughs> but I think I think there is a, a point there, which is the idea of well, first the idea of economic progress um, it, in and of itself, the idea of investment um, that can be worth more in the future is actually. A really hard concept to get around, right? In biblical times, it was seven years of famine and seven years of prosperity, right? It was just cyclical. Um, and so you could eat your seed corn, but you didn't really invest uh, uh, for the future. But the second thing is, is uh, um, there's just this weird sort of inability to understand the, the uh, you know, and sort of micromanage other people in the way that they want to use uh, a credit. Um, and you know, like they said in the National Commission on Consumer Finance, we don't try to set the price of a hamburger. We don't set the price of a car, yet we're going to set the price of the loan you used to get the car. Um, and now, as we know, you can just change the price of the car if you uh, tie, it to the, uh, tie it to the loan. So I think there is a fundamental uh, error here. It's repeated again and again. For whatever reason, um, every person thinks that everybody else uses consumer credit recklessly, but they use it responsibly. Um, and, um, and this, and so I think it's just an intellectual error, uh, that is very persistent, um, in, in people's minds, but again and again and again comes back and, and we have, unfortunately, it seems like we keep having to learn the lesson, uh, the hard way, uh, um, that you can't, you can get rid of the supply of consumer credit, but you can't get rid of the demand. Um, and there's always going to be entrepreneurs like Tony Soprano and fat Tony Salerno, uh, who are going to bring uh, in these uh, Latin Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. It's American Heritage Month. Hey, that, that, that's out. right. That's I, right. Like to, I said they were entrepreneurs okay. uh, meeting uh, consumer demand. <laughs> to add to it, Todd, Todd says, for, for thousands of years also, it was taken virtually for granted that uh, prices had to be fixed by the government. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the other, the main intellectual error is transfer income by screwing with prices. And we've been doing that for 2,000 years. And slowly but surely, thanks to Adam Smith, we figured out the price controls upper and lower uh, to either protect producers or protect consumers are a bad idea. It's taken virtually for granted that you need governments to tell people what occupations they can be in, uh, guilds, uh, licenses, all the rest of it. Gradually, starting in the 1700s, we learned that's a bad idea. So I, I think consumer... Uh, uh, usury laws are just one example of, of price because some people still jump to that every day. Every uh, you know, got to stop the price of gas from going up, stop the price of houses from going up. Yeah, well, that does, <laughs> and and regulate who gets to do what business. Uh, that doesn't mean it's a good idea just because we've been trying for two thousand years to get over this bad habit. And there is some self-interest involved, which is restricting access by ordinary people to credit creates more credit availability for richer people. That's what the evidence shows uh, historically. So. so my first question is, I haven't heard anybody talk about securities regulation. I wondered if you would have any thoughts about the future of securities regulation, or don't you see major problems in that area? And <laughs> well, the, I definitely see major problems <laughs> in the area. I mean, let just, me, John, let me get my second question oh, for the second, other John, oh, okay. right. and um, <laughs> because I don't want to lose my opportunity 
Could you help us define the capital structure for banks that you would prefer? You talked about equity financing. So maybe in baby talk for me, what, how are you going to define equity? And equity is a percent of, you know, what percent and percent of what? But Professor Macy? No, I, I'd love to hear you. <laughs> That's a short one. I'm, uh, you know, keep it simple. Uh, I, I like uh, good old-fashioned common stock. You can get fancy with other stuff if you want. Uh, and, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm for a sliding scale. So I like to look at the market value of your equity relative to the face value of your short-term debt. And as that number gets lower and lower, we're going to, you know, expose you to more and more of the tender mercies of the Dodd-Frank Act. What about going back to the good old days where we had a, a, a double liability for bank uh, shareholders? That was a that was a way of capitalizing banks. That uh, I'm, I'm a nostalgic guy like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that, and then a lot of sort of clawback from the executives thing. But I, I think just uh, I, I like small amounts of risk widely spread uh, and transparently held through. Uh, Prices, but let's get to securities regulation. My, I just really yeah, uh, specific, <laughs> if there are specifics that you have on your mind. Uh, c certainly, um, you know, if we're looking at the future of it, I I'm a little worried about using securities regulation to advance political uh, goals. Whether you like those goals or not, you know, the, the current um, effort to, to end ESG and especially climate financing to force that via securities regulation seems like a a, uh, even if you like the outcome, a, a dubious way of going about it. But if there are other specific issues you had in mind with securities regulation, I'm sure you get more outraged commentary. The thing that outrages me about securities regulation is it's how regressive it is, right? That the, mm. our, the structure of our securities regulation is that uh, you know, we've, we've made it incredibly difficult to access the public capital markets. We've shrunk the number of public companies from 6,000 to about 4,000. We have a situ situation where if you're the, you know, the, the, the uh, 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 Stanford endowment or, uh, you know, you have access to uh, in, in investments that are uh, only available in private placements that the average investor can't, can't access uh, at all. That it seems to me that's the, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's exactly the story that Todd uh, Zwicky was telling about about you know uh, cutting off credit, you know making making credit more available to the sort of the sort of rich people. I would be, and I think that if I were to make a change in the structure of securities markets, it would be to, to democratize them more and allow greater widespread access to securities outside of the private placement context. I propose, uh, given the fees that people like Stanford pay for their wonderful ability <laughs> to access these things, it's not clear they're making a whole lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of my colleagues added up that Stanford's paying $800 million in fees for their wonderful mm. investments. So it's not, not clear wow. they're coming out. <laughs> That's really, really interesting, yeah. Well, can I ask a question before we wrap? Um, yes, actually, I think so. You have your to securities regulation. Um, one trend that I've been keeping an eye on, and it's come up most recently in securities regulation, is the ways in which regulation today might depend on policy change in the future. The, the SEC's climate regulation policies, part of that is not just fiscal risk of floods from climate change, right. what they call transition risk, yes. right? the risk that in the future policies might change radically that could be destabilizing. 
But you know, we just went through this experience with banks and inflation giving rise to moves on interest rates, which have real-world policy. So it's not hard to imagine bank regulation going forward. You know, keeping an eye on policies that might be inflationary tomorrow and worrying about them today. And maybe the, the most controversial example of this was a few years ago, uh, former Fed President Bill Dudley had a call in Bloomberg where he said F financial regulators today with an eye to systemic risk should maybe take action today to avoid what they see as disruptive political outcomes in future elections. Um, so that's just three data points, but I, I do wonder how much financial going forward financial regulation in the present moment might depend on regulators' views of policy changes in the future? That's kind of a ponderous question, I guess, to, to drop on the panel as we're running out of time, but um, your question made me think of it. I'd love to hear people's thoughts. I'll just have a quick comment, and I'll just, uh, I wrote an essay recently for Heritage on uh, restoring the rule of law in finance, and um, your, what your question brings to mind was, you may remember Sally Amarova, who was um, the first nominee to be controlled of currency by, by Biden. And if you recall, what finally brought her down was that she was going to use, she basically said we should use the financial system to bankrupt the fossil fuels industry, right? And this is sort of the peril and the importance of financial, of the financial system, right? It now sits at the center of everything that happens in this economy and the economy around the world. There's a reason why they call, the Obama administration called it Operation Choke Point, because they said the financial system, they're going to use the financial system to choke off the air that these guys need to breathe for these industries that they didn't like, like payday lending and that sort of thing. And this is a switch. This is the on-off switch in the center of all this. And just by tinkering around with how you weigh capital, transition risk, I laughed when he said it, because it's this absurd idea that you have to discount for, you know, one regulatory aid body is saying you have to hold more reserve capital because these guys over here who are part of our own administration might do something crazy uh, to fossil fuels, right, for example. And so you've got to hold more risk against fossil fuels. And this ability to use the financial system for this anti-democratic purpose of controlling energy, of controlling products and services, of controlling speech, of controlling access to uh, you know, firearms, that sort of thing. And it's all completely non-transparent, right? The financial system is the apotheosis of the regulatory state in that there's really no rules there. It's all regulation by raised eyebrow and that sort of thing. Um, and this problem of, I think, the rule of law in this predictability question is a really big one um, in thinking about how we keep the financial system not only stable, but also useful and not just become a means of anti-democratic uh, policymaking. I'll take a different view. This is the joy of being an academic. Um, there's a big difference between where you actually have regulation coming in, and and some of this gets to John's point over how about the stress test to become. I mean, one of the challenges is we took a tool that was meant to be initially information producing and forward looking. Greg Hopper spent a lot of time on these issues, um, and and then we hardwired it into capital regulation. And as soon as we came up with the stress capital buffer, which again was originally proposed by Tarullo, even though it was uh, ultimately implemented under Corals, like we were going to make them really predictable because you don't want capital regulation to vary a lot from year to year. 
So we're creating a mechanism through which we had something that was kind of forward-looking and experimental and meant to produce more information, and then we put it in a regulatory architecture that by its nature was going to make it less of that. And I actually would like to see like the stress test of what they originally could have been in a different way of just a tool where you ask all kinds of different hypotheticals, whether it's about Taiwan, whether it's about climate, who, who knows what. But I think that there is a separate place for regulators kind of not in a heavy handed, this is what's going to determine the amount of capital and liquidity you have to hold, but kind of like we want to have a horizontal view across this overall system of what's going to happen or what banks think might happen in the face of particular types of shocks. And I think we've kind of gotten away from like those types of tools of like, let's ask a whole variety of different hypotheticals and then come up with an understanding of are financial institutions able to produce that information or not, which is going to tell us something? And are there suddenly things that we see when we're able to look not just institution by institution, but kind of horizontally across the entire regime that suggests like maybe we need to be thinking uh, differently about whether it's a geopolitical risk or a policy risk or who knows what. So I mean, I, I think part of it is just like you have to have a wealth of different types of tools, and we've we've done too little in the like let's just produce information that actually could be really useful but and ask some hard questions. You point out an interesting feature of our regulatory architecture that anytime you do things once, it becomes a tradition, <laughs> and, and 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 then it becomes enshrined. And not only is the the fact the nature of the stress test, but the actual question was going to be for the next hundred years: what if two thousand and eight happens? Yeah. Again. Uh, not just as an experimental, this, this thing happened to work once. Uh, please join me in thanking our first speaker. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Adlaw Center.